This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I was thinking about episode 81 the other day. We had Mark Helmsing on and we talked about curriculum theory. And one of the things we talked about was the hidden curriculum, right? The things that you learn that aren't necessarily taught. And I feel like that's the episode we talked about Snow White. That's a, the infamous Snow White episode. Yes, yes. Where, where I learned not to use about how, how that was curriculum, actually. Well, so I was thinking about the other day about all the things students learn that we don't necessarily mean to teach, or maybe we do, but we don't do it explicitly. What do you think your students learn from just being in your class? So I'm teaching, so I teach world, I teach uh, my U.S. history course is one that I've actually been thinking a lot about the curriculum and where we start in like our curriculum usually starts with, you know, the colonist coming down. And I feel like when we do that, we're hiding people literally like we're hiding the native Americans who are there. And so I've been trying to work on making that better, realizing that I am still kind of working my way through it. But I'm doing my best to kind of like expose some hidden parts of the curriculum that should be there. Like it shouldn't, it's not like there was no one in the, the, the here before. So maybe without you, whether you say it or not, in making efforts to try to teach often marginalized groups who are often erased from the curriculum, maybe yeah. you even show your students the, maybe you're teaching your students a skill, even if you're not making it explicit. They're picking up that there's problems in the narrative, that there's things that need to be disrupted. That would be it, something good, like yeah, that they're coming across. Your atti- I think your attitude towards history and curriculum, and you know, could teach a lot. But you also can teach a lot just from, you know, the way your class is structured, right? Whether you ask them to sit in their seats all hour, or kind of obey by things, or whether you have discussions about how to do things in the classroom or in the school. I could you can learn a lot from that. Yeah. I guess if you're like, if you're talking about democracy, you don't let students talk and and voice their opinions. That's probably kind of not the best, well, use of your time, period. But you're also not really, you're just paying lip service to like the whole democracy credo. And schools are, you know, have hardly any democratic aspects to them, right? Student government notoriously has very little power to to influence the school. They get to pick prom colors and not actually decide like, on things that are important to them. We just took over student council. Yeah. Well, maybe you can change it. That's right. I'm making a get them a Get them a seat with the administrators and superintendent. We uh, actually did. That was one of our sticking points. So is it, do they have real power? No. Or do they get to sit there? We're trying. So we are, we asked when we took it over, like we kind of revamped some of the positions. We got rid of one elected positions and we're allowing any students who want to be involved to be involved and they can, so the representative position, there's a lot of them, but now it's not an elected thing. If you just want to be involved, you can just totally be involved. Why are we saying no to people? 
And then we also got the administration to agree to a sit down with at least the presidents and the executive board once a month. And so that's a way that we're trying to, you know, make it so it's more than just prom colors. So people may wonder why we're discussing all of these issues. And I think the reason I was thinking about the hidden curriculum is I was recently with my one of my classes. We were we read a talk to teachers by James Baldwin. Oh, yeah. And he talks about kind of what I what I think maybe later became known as the hidden curriculum, talking about all of the things children learn. And he was specifically talking about black children, about when they walk around in society, even if no one tells them, there's spaces that seem to be what he said, not for them. And he talked about the first time he kind of went downtown in New York. And he said, I felt like it wasn't for me. The city, that part of the city seemed to be, um, have all these services and amenities that my part of town didn't. And if a kid sees that, I mean, I, I think about the kids see that same thing when they go into school. They know some schools have lots of money and resources and their school has old textbooks or doesn't have up, the updated stuff other schools have. What, what are they learning about race and power in society without anyone telling them? And if we never talk about it, what are they, how are they supposed to make sense of that? That's interesting. What were your, what were your students' discussions like? I think it's a, it, you know, if you've never read it, I do highly recommend everyone read a talk to teachers. It was written in the 19, early 1960s by James Baldwin, who's an incredible writer. And it resonates today in so many ways, even, even though you can kind of see some, some historical differences, you see a lot of historical continuity yeah. um, in some of the, the issues. I think most students are kind of in awe of the article and, and thinking about it, but I also wonder if always I'm curious if we have the ability to make sense of it in the present in real ways because it's a real challenge to what we do in schools and that schools can be as miseducative as they can be educative. Yeah, it's true. So we'd like to welcome into the podcast Dr. Marcus Johnson. Welcome. How are you? We're good. Good. Dr. Johnson, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. I guess I can start where I am presently and then work backwards. I currently serve as an assistant professor at Texas State University here in San Marcos, Texas. I received my BA and master's from Texas Christian University, TCU, and my PhD from UT of Austin. But as it applies to the article uh, that we'll be discussing today, I like to really put and focus attention on the elementary schools that I attended in Houston, Texas. One which is Atherton Elementary, uh, which is located in the historic district of Fifth Ward. Matter of fact, the school I attended produced the likes of Barbara Jordan, who was a congresswoman. George Foreman attended that school, as well as Mickey Leland, who was a state representative, as well as many other people who are part of what you talk about, that hidden curriculum that we never talk about. And the other was Pleasantville Elementary School, both which supported, encouraged, and loved me through curriculum and pedagogy. And it was just one of those things where when I went back to teaching, I saw a difference between being a student in that particular area and being a teacher in another area. What was the school situation like? Was it primarily black teachers and black students? Was it an integrated school? What what helped you feel so supported in that environment? You know, it's interesting, you just speaking about James Baldwin and him talking about 
traveling to places where he didn't feel as if he was a member. And to be honest, it was almost the exact opposite in those spaces that I was a student in. Within our hallways, we had not only people of Black history posted within hallways, the cafeteria, in our classrooms, but they, but we also had members of the community and our family members that were on the hallway. So as I'm walking down the hallway, I literally see my mother on the wall when she was young. I see my aunts and uncles on the wall when they were young. And so it was one of those things where I felt connected to something that was bigger than me without even saying. It. So in that aspect, I felt a part of something that that connected what I was doing presently to a history that I had no idea about but was soon to learn about. That's really uh, incredible to, to hear that because, I mean, students, I and mean, I think sometimes, you know, when I read about the history of education, you think about how particularly, you know, black schools prior to integration did, were such pillars of the community and students often felt so supported in their schools. And then post-integration, how oftentimes black students, so many black teachers were fired after Brown v. Board. And so many black students got white teachers after that. I remember reading about Bell Hooks, talking about her experience where she just went from a segregated school where she felt loved to an integrated school where she felt, you know, hated and dismissed. And so to, I think, you know, culturally responsive and relevant pedagogies have so much focused on creating the environment you're talking about, but it's just not happening in enough schools. So it's cool that you went to a school where you really felt that. Very true. Very true. And it's interesting you bring up that bell hooks. I just had my class read the intro to teaching to transgress and they were blown away. Yeah, that's I've actually got we're reading that in like two weeks in my class. <laughs> so gotcha. We, gotcha. We, should, we should have our students talk to each other. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, good stuff. I feel left out because I have, <laughs> do not have my students reading that. And also I have to read it. Michael, I did actually, you know, I used to use, uh, I talked to teachers with high school students and it was really provocative and interesting to see high school students. And, you know, they did a great job overall with it and they found the tech really interesting, but I did it with high school sociology class and we read about it and that was kind of one of our intros to talking about race and our school environment. But I'll send you the articles. Looking forward to it. Oh, speaking of articles. <laughs> Nice transition there, Michael. I am good. So one of the reasons we're having Dr. Johnson on is because he has published an article in Theory and Research and Social Education. And before we go forward, we should say congratulations on your publication. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So the article is titled Trump, Kaepernick, and MLK as Maybe Citizens, Early Elementary African-American Males Analysis of Citizenship. Can you tell us about about this paper? Sure. Initially, the the paper set out to capture young black males in early elementary, their perspectives on heroes and role models. And one of the things that I found out was that many of the aspects and elements that were connected to being a hero and being a role model sort of stemmed or, or, or flowed into what we considered citizenship. So I extended it to see what their perspectives were of citizenship. And one of the things that was really amazing is, like the show said back in the day, kids do say the darndest things. And so when I laid that out for them, it was very, very interesting to hear their perspectives and their attitudes and their voices 
about citizenship and what we sometimes fail to miss and misread about their perspectives at that age. That sounds fascinating. I am looking forward to hearing some of these things that they're saying. Oh, yeah, man, they were they were off the chain. And one of the things that I enjoyed about it is as much as I was coming and felt that my presence was beneficial, these participants poured into me way more than I ever could have could have imagined. And so as we as the study flowed from heroes to role models and then citizens, we got into the conversation about defining what a citizen is. And we determined that a citizen is a person in the local, state, national, and global community that has rights and protections while also upholding the social responsibility of treating others right. Very general, but that's what, together, that's what we came up with. And as we continued to go down the discussion of citizenship, one of the things that we found was that the more a citizen was occupied with upholding the social responsibility of treating others right, ironically, the less protections that they receive as a citizen. And just to hear them talk about that was really amazing, especially because some of the students that I had as participants, some of the teachers told me, hey, those two right there are troublemakers, or this one right here is a troublemaker, that one right there, he acts bad. Ironically, those labeled as troublemakers were some of the students who had the most acute analysis and critical analysis of how citizenship can be read and and how you can be placed or be misplaced as a citizen and treated wrong. So when you said that, that definition of that citizens, as they have more responsibility towards others' rights, they have more taken away from them. The first person I thought of was Colin Kaepernick. Exactly. And so was he an example of somebody who was brought up in the discussions that students talked about? He was. And at at the time, one of the students and I were talking about Colin Kaepernick. And during this time, he really it was interesting to see how he, as well as the other participants, viewed that because they stand up for the pledge and other allegiances every day. So to do something that they don't do seemed sort of they they really couldn't figure it out. And so when I presented the fact of what Colin Kaepernick was doing, one of the participants stated, well, he does have a good point. And one of the good points kept becoming, well, he's doing this to bring awareness for how people are being treated. And in that aspect, it made him a maybe citizen, which is one of the scenarios of being a maybe citizen is that it's based on how one is mistreated or treated by society despite their honorable deeds and also a contradiction of title and actions. And so in a lot of ways, Colin Kaepernick fit that first part of being mistreated by society despite the honorable deeds. So in your title, you say Trump, Kaepernick and MLK as maybe citizens. I get two of the three. You might have to explain the first one to me, though. How, why, how did those three fit together? And, and what other heroes and people and citizens did they bring up? Sure. The, the Trump came up based on the contradiction of title and action. And based on our definition of citizenship, it was one of the things where the title, there's a contradiction between a title and action. And so a nurse 
that Lithers is a maybe citizen because the title brings some social equity or social currency to what their actions are supposed to be. So uh, a nurse that litters or a doctor that treats people bad is a maybe citizen. In this case, we also use George Washington as well as Trump. They labeled as maybe citizens because of their title. President of the United States holds social and political currency. However, some of the things that uh, they read about how they treated people made them, it, it ironically did not fit what the responsibility of that title held. I'm guessing you're not talking about what, that Washington wouldn't shake people's hands, right? I guess I'm, right. Guessing we're talk, I'm guessing we're talking about his position as a slave owner. That is correct. And <laughs> it, it was interesting enough that I used a lot of counter narratives throughout this study and throughout our lessons where they were absolutely fascinated to learn these things about people who they had on, I guess if we wanted to put it in the hierarchy, had these people on the top, but the counter narratives actually brought them to the maybe citizenship. Whereas with the black males that we were looking at, Colin Kaepernick, uh, Tupac Shakur, they were looked at initially as bad citizens and they're in the, common narratives brought them to maybe citizenship. It's interesting that you have citizenship as kind of the pinnacle of what a person can be. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting because as, as Lowenthal states with social studies, it disguises itself as what students should learn, but reveals itself as what students should become. And so in this in this way of looking at social studies and looking at history, as well as through critical childhood studies, allowing the participants to have their own interpretations of what is happening around them. It was really interesting to see how they read the people that were placed before them. And when they were placed in a, in a space where they could be authentic and honest about how they felt, it really brought to light some of the things that we as teachers and teacher educators might misread. I'm curious if the kids came up with the term maybe citizen or if you came up with the term after looking over all the things that the children were saying. The term actually came from one of the participants in the study. We were talking about Colin Kaepernick and he mentioned how Kaepernick had a good point and that he was a maybe citizen. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And so based on that, the other participants in that in the study start using that term to describe people who could be placed in that category. At that point where you're like, bam, that's the title of this article. <laughs> it was, I, I promise you, as soon as he said that, it just flew off the page for me when I was transcribing our, our interview. And even then during the interview, it was interesting because he asked me, and this is one of the things that, that I want to encourage our teacher educators to do. He asked me during that during our talk, have I ever watched the movie Straight Outta Compton? Now, this is a first grader, and I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing watching Straight Outta Compton? But it was interesting that he used popular culture to connect to something that we were using within the classroom. And so he said, well, in the movie, the police saw the rappers outside and didn't treat them well, and I don't think that's a good thing to do. And so I see that happening a lot, and I want... I don't want that to happen to me because I'm black and that's not a good thing. And so based on something that he brought 
into the conversation that I never would have connected at all. He made that connection very relevant and obvious to the rest of us in that class. And it, it seems like black families and black teachers tend to be better at having these, you know, difficult discussions with black children because they realize how necessary they are, that they have to understand some of these things growing up in a racist society, that they have to understand that that racism is there. But I, I always know when I'm working with white teacher candidates, it really, they don't know how to often have these conversations. And there's such right. a learning curve for figuring out how to have conversations that you can't shy away with young kids about difficult topics, especially if they may have to confront them in their lives. Very true. It's interesting even to what many teachers consider controversial, because in a, in a lot of ways, something being controversial is relative. Dan, it, it, if you and I are in a ditch and we're getting mud poured on us, it's not controversial for us to figure out how the heck to get out of this ditch and stop having the mud put on us. But I, I use that analogy because in many ways that could be a perspective of many groups that identify as being marginalized within society. And so even what we consider controversial is relative. And I think for our teacher educators, we have to cultivate that courage that comes in teaching truth or parousia, which Foucault spoke to is truth telling. We have to, for some, it might come more natural than others, but especially me teaching a social studies methods course, for me not to include these subjects would almost be like putting paint on a car that doesn't have an engine. You know, I, I feel like the spirit and the soul that drives these conversations needs to be cultivated and fostered versus just the strategies and techniques of teaching them. So in a moment, we'll talk about what you hope that teachers can take away from this. What do you think the students took away from this discussion? Interesting. I believe the students took from this the ability to question and to question the things that are relevant to them. And in a lot of ways, that question can lead to multiple answers, but the question is the first part. So I think part of what the students receive from this is the, the, the right and the authority and privilege of questioning what's put before them, especially within textbooks and how that can extend not only to what we use in the classroom, but outside the classroom as well, to where we start questioning, is this right? Is this wrong? Not necessarily just taking on what we're being told, but having the courage to, to stop and, and hit the pause button on common sense assumptions that we all might carry. That's great. That really does sound great. What do you want other teachers to take away from, from the research you've done, from the lesson you created and the concept you created? One of the things that I think teachers can take from this study is that we have and teachers have the power to shape what we consider, quote unquote, the inherent goodness and worthiness of people presented within the textbook. Another thing that I think that can be taken from the study is that urban schools are, are not simply reminders of inequity, but they can be possessors of knowledge and resourcefulness and joy and love, because even though we were being critical within the classroom. It was a space where we poured into each other. 
we didn't we did not have preconceived notions of what was right to say, what was wrong to say. And I think in that space, we provided the opportunity for not only the students to be authentic in what they thought and felt, but also the teachers. Interesting how much we can learn from kids, right? That they they're able to have really incredible insights and talk really honestly about difficult issues. And it sounds like in your study they got an opportunity to do so. And I just appreciate you sharing their wisdom back with us. Exactly, it, it provided a, a great provocative challenge to the way that we teach citizenship and the way it's conceived within educational research. MJ, we definitely appreciate you coming on to to chat with us today about your about your work. I appreciate being involved in it, man. It was awesome. It was. Now, where can our listeners find you or, or more of your work online? You can find, if you would like to contact me or find my work, you can email me at mjohnson at texasstate.edu. That's mjohnsontxstate.edu. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Johnson. We really hope to continue the discussion online and other spaces and hopefully you don't get too many emails, but get some really good emails of people uh, who want to get some resources from you. I appreciate the time. And before I go, I would like to thank the institution that I teach at Texas State University and more so the teachers, the faculty, the staff, as well as the students that were part of this study. It was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Thank appreciate you. it. You guys have a good one. Thank you. You too. We're all about sharing the learning of the Vision of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, and I think that other place is Pinterest that I signed us up for once. Also, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you'd like us to be. Wow, you dropped the mystery place in there without even saying much. And if that got you excited that you now know the mystery place, you can write us a five-star review and we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.